News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I almost feel like that could have been the BC Lottery Corporation's theme song six or seven years ago with bags of cash coming into casinos and casino companies in BCLC just raking it in. And we know that was troublesome, right? Now we're hearing some pretty damning testimony about the actions that went on for the BC Lottery Corporation's CEO, the former CEO, I should say, Michael Graydon, who was testifying at the Cullen Commission on Money Laundering uh, yesterday. So let's find out what was going on. Joining us now once again is Sam Cooper, Global News Investigative Journalist. Hi, Sam. Hi, Simi. Okay, so Michael Graydon, the former CEO, kind of during all of this time, what did he see going on? Was he suspicious about anything? Uh, he really, uh, what we heard yesterday, and we've had three big witnesses this week, we heard that uh, he and his staff were warned that from after 2010, this money laundering scheme was, was going exponential. These bags of uh, $20 bills, in bricks of 10,000 wrapped in elastic bands, brought in in grocery bags. It was scaling up exponentially by the year. And two things really struck me yesterday. We heard of emails that uh, Mr. Graydon sent to his executive staff. Uh, December 2011, he really cracks the whip to bring in that revenue. Uh, quotes were to the effect that you will unleash consequences. You will not get your bonuses because government is a very adamant that we bring in our uh, we meet our net income targets this year and so what the commission lawyers put to mr graydon was you had a dual mandate yes you were uh, mandated to bring in money for bc's government but you had to do it responsibly you had to take adequate anti-money laundering measures they put it to mr graydon you didn't do the second part and uh from what i heard he, he didn't have a good answer why BC Lottery Corporation knowingly allowed casinos to bring in, a, let's just say, a, a box with $200,000 in 20s uh, after banking hours into a casino cage. And then he came up with a stunning answer. Uh, I think a lot of people, uh, the lawyers at the commission, really probably uh, spit out their coffee uh, <laughs> at the computer screen. Uh, he said Fintrack, that's Canada's anti-money laundering agency, wanted us to accept that that suspicious what? type of cash. Mm-hmm. Yes, he said for data collection purposes, he understood that BC casinos were supposed to uh, take in suspect, what, what, their, what frontline investigators were, were calling suspect, suspected drug cash. So and, uh, what, he would, it was some big, high, deep, deep, deep undercover investigation by Fintrack? That seemed to be it really uh, his his argument was we were there to observe and report and collect data. Uh, FinTrack would report to police and and perhaps investigate investigations would occur. But uh, we we later heard in testimony uh, a government of Canada lawyer said you don't have any evidence to say that FinTrack told you to do that. And he said um, you're very likely right. Uh, I might have been mistaken. Uh, and I can tell you that FinTrack in Ottawa was not happy with that statement. And uh, really, it, it didn't add up. It looked like an excuse. There was one more piece of evidence to, to really shed light on that. We later heard that fin, uh, an email showed a FinTrack audit in 2011 had asked BC Lottery Corporation to demand casinos ask uh, these high rollers their source of funds when they brought in 
massive or inordinate amounts of cash, $20 bills. That's a direction to Mr. Graydon, and he didn't follow it. And uh, as we have heard, it didn't happen until 2018. Uh, why did it happen? Uh, from my point of view, uh, exposure in the media is why it happened. Wow. Okay. It sounds from his testimony, though, Sam, that the entire system at that time was set up to just don't ask questions and produce more money. Like at some point, did he not also say that some of his executives were earning bonuses of up to 25% of their salaries? That's correct. And that brings us back to those what I would call whip cracking emails. He said in incentivization through bonuses was a tool that I used. I felt uh, that the government, the ministers in charge, uh, it would be Rich Coleman was one of those at, at the time, wanted, expected BC Lottery Corp to meet our budget, which we, we put in. And, you know, uh, it really it, it is interesting that uh, he was cracking the whip, as I say, in December, because we have heard uh, that the Lottery Corp wanted to bring in, really, they saw the Chinese New Year, which happens uh, in, you know, January, early February, when these uh, VIPs from offshore would, would travel into BC to bet big money, they wanted to bring in cash and they rose bet limits in 2013 to $100,000 per hand specifically to bring in more cash. And that brings me to an important witness we heard earlier in the week is uh, Mr. Walter Sue, a former executive. We heard that at the River Rock Casino, he built this, this VIP gambling model along, you know, under direction from his bosses, along with the Lottery Corporation, and it was to go out and get those high rollers in Macau. These are Chinese nationals that uh, we know are using underground banking to get money out of China. And uh, this, is a, this was stunning testimony. We heard a confidential memo late 2014. Mr. Su argued Xi Jinping, the president, is cracking down on corruption and money laundering in Macau. This will bring more money to River Rock Casino if we build more uh, Baccarat tables. And that's what they did. And so from my, from my reading, that what that evidence shows is a, a type of a, a, knowing, a knowing, a willful attraction yeah. of what could be reasonably suspected to be criminal proceeds. Didn't they actually clear out a room that was used for storage or something so that they could squeeze in more high roller Baccarat tables? That's correct. There were too many bombshells this week to cover in a few minutes. That, that as part of... That plan, as it, the evidence suggests, they cleared out a room that was meant for security and surveillance and put in 10 new tables. Uh, at, you know, and this was, Mr. Graydon said it was part of our plan all along to build these facilities to attract these high rollers. And that brings me to a, a last important point I, I think your, your listeners need to hear, Simi. We heard of very troubling compliance concerns that go along with these high rollers at River Rock Casino, we were told that a VIP program manager essentially covered up a sexual assault or attempted to cover up a sexual assault on a casino staff done by uh, probably one, one, if not the biggest VIP ever in River Rock Casino, got drunk, sexually assaulted a casino staff, and we heard that this manager that was uh, inappropriately close with the VIP tried to smooth it over so that police weren't called and that gambler kept betting that night after the assault it's not it's not disputed the assault occurred and uh we we, we're digging into it we want to know more simi oh that is crazy uh sam thank you so much for the update thanks simi
That's Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist. You can read his complete story about testimony and everything heard at the Cullen Commission this week at globalnews.ca. I was reading his story this morning, and one other tidbit that really stuck out for me, that there was a branch report that warned former CEO Michael Grayton that there were the 22 high rollers, so the top 22 high rollers that they had were responsible for suspicious buy-ins of $45 million. And so he was being told, listen, there's the suspicious like buy-ins of $45 million here, and it's these 22 people that, you know, kind of questionable. Uh, he pushed back, didn't want to do anything about it. He argued that cracking down would impact lottery corporation revenue. That right there in a nutshell tells you why we have this commission that's going, right? Sam's doing a great job covering it. We will, of course, continue to check in with him. But again, you can keep track of his coverage as well. Just go to globalnews.ca. It's a huge event on the calendar for so many people. Lunar New Year celebrations are kicking off today, happening a lot over the weekend, celebrating, of course, the Year of the Ox. Now, we know that so many of our traditions and holidays and events have been different over the past year, right? Whether it was Christmas, Thanksgiving, Diwali, you name it. And that's going to be the same for Lunar New Year for sure. Now, one local chef is making sure that some traditions do continue regardless of the pandemic. Denise Y joins is now a Vancouver chef and founder of Six Senses Cooking School. Denise, thanks for being here. Good morning. How are you? I am good, thank you. So tell me about yeah. some of some of your traditions for Lunar New Year. What do you do? Um, I mean, for this year, totally it's different, right? Yes. <laughs> we have to stay in our bubble. But usually, um, we will, especially today, is the first day of the Chinese New Year calendar day. So usually my family will, you know, come together to have a big fist dinner but this year we'll stay in our bubble and also we'll um, gather together and make some, you know, traditional snacks and uh, pudding cake. Oh, okay. I know, I know food is so much a big part of this. So you talked about a yeah. couple of traditional dishes there. So what does it mean for the each individual dish that you're eating? What's the meaning behind that? Oh, um, the, the, the one which we usually do is uh, the radish cake. Uh, the radish cake is, is like much more like uh, um, the Western uh, Christmas cake. So we will do it every year with, you know, the radish and those uh, are the savory sausages. And mm. it's represent, it's much more like a harvest, like right. a, a harvest or a, a cake to celebrate the new year. And the other dish is what we usually make. It's either the sweet dumpling or the savory dumpling. Uh, the dumpling represent is like uh, um, a full, you know, celebration of the new year. Yes, I know. I've stocked up on mm-hmm. dumplings just for this weekend. I want to make <laughs> sure that I have some too. So, you know, so yeah, the food always represents something, right? Like you're looking for things yeah. that represent prosperity, good luck, long life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That that is um, that is the symbols of um, usually we, uh, for every dish. Um, in our traditional way, we have uh, like a dish name. It's like the radish cake is much more like a, a, a gathering or for food harvest. And for the dumpling, it's much more represent, you know, fortune or maybe even, you know, uh, a good start. So uh, this is what we usually do at home and uh, to celebrate. And sometimes uh, we will, you know, even uh, to, to start from the, the morning until the evening too. So you're going to eat all day. That's your eat all day. Yeah, it's it's similar like, you know, the Christmas day. 
I'm into this. I'm into this, Denise. I'm going to be participating wholeheartedly. So what? So if people want to do that, where would you suggest that they start? What kind of dishes should any of us have if we want to celebrate Lunar New Year? Well, for the uh, for the one which is really simple, I would highly recommend a dumpling because it's really simple to make, and all the ingredients you could get it at any local, you know, market or supermarket. And also, one more thing is you could, you know, make the dumpling with your family. It's much more like a gathering thing. Is uh, it's it's much more like a family fun thing. Right. So have like an assembly line, right? One person. Makes the <laughs> makes the meat like makes the mixture. One person like stuffs it. One person folds it because you have to. I, I suggest people watch a video on how to fold it because there are some tricks to it, right? Oh yeah, there's there's a lot of tricks, and each family, you know, they have their traditional way how to fold it, how to wrap the dumpling, or how to um, mix the dumpling ingredients and things like that. So so this is much more like a really really fun family gathering event. And plus, after that, you could enjoy your own dumpling, right? Nice. I like this. So what do you put in your dumplings? For myself, um, it's, every year it's different. Uh, this year, I will put some more like a really um, healthy ingredient like the goji berries or maybe some nagamo. Um, for, in the past, I usually I'll put some meat and, and maybe some vegetarian. But this year, I'll put more like a healthy ingredient into my into my dumpling okay so are there foods and things that you should avoid like you don't want bad luck for the lunar new year so what should you avoid uh not really food it's just only um i i think i think for the food it's okay but you know the 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 words that you you know the greeting words that you do or maybe some traditional habits that you shouldn't do on the first day of chinese new year like, uh, I remember when I was young, my mom told me not to uh, sweep the floor. Yes, I've heard this. You know? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because it, 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 re- it represents that you, all your fortune will, will sweep away for the whole year. So uh, for the food, it's, it's mostly it's much more like, uh, to me, there's nothing bad or good food to, to avoid in the, I mean, during the Chinese New Year. Should it be plentiful? Like, do you want to have lots of it? Oh, yeah, you have to be plentiful because you because um, you have to prepare for people, you know, uh, maybe they want more or maybe, you know, you will have some, you know, in the past, I usually we have family members to come and visit us. Right. So you have to prepare much more like a plenty of the dishes or maybe snacks. You know, when people come to, you know, visit you, yes, uh, similar like, similar like, you know, Christmas. Well, Denise, yeah. listen, I wish you the best of luck. I know you're probably going to have to Zoom with your family or, you know, look, talk to them online for your celebration. Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> but thank you very much for talking to us this morning. Yeah. You've inspired me. Yeah, thank you so much. And wish you uh, good health and good luck in the ox year. And the same to you. Good luck in the ox year. That is Denise Wye, Vancouver chef, founder of Six Senses Cooking School. She's inspired me. I'm making dumplings. I'm going to do it. I had to make dumplings this weekend myself. Uh, it's she, She's right. The ingredients are easy easy to find in the grocery store. You can get dumpling wrappers just about anywhere now. I'm going to give this a shot.
Lunar New Year celebrations kick off uh, today, as a matter of fact, Year of the Ox. And of course, it's not going to be like you would see in past years for Lunar New Year celebrations. And there is certainly a very high awareness of that. A lot of things have moved online. I'm just going to give another shout out here. I was talking to Emily Lazadin this morning, and I said how yesterday in preparation for Lunar New Year, I wanted to go check out a business that I had seen profiled on the news hour on Global News. It's Cam Wai Dim Sum. It's in Chinatown, just at Maine and Pender. So I went there yesterday. They have been wholesalers of frozen dim sum to restaurants and grocery stores for years, but because of the pandemic, they've pivoted. So now they also sell their frozen dim sum retail to the public. Went there yesterday, bought a whole bunch of it, took it home, steamed it up. Amazing. So if you really, if you want to try something new this year, I would highly recommend checking them out. They are in Chinatown, but that's the thing, right? Support local businesses, uh, try something different. That's what they're doing for Lunar New Year celebration. So local nonprofit organizations have gotten together to host and organize a virtual Lunar New Year celebration. It's called an Auspicious Vancouver Chinatown New Lunar New Year celebration because it's the year of the ox, actually. So it'll kick off tomorrow. And they're doing this so that they can make sure that they accommodate, you know, COVID-19 restrictions, make sure everything is as safe as possible. Right now, we're going to talk to Michael Tan, who is the co-chair of the Chinatown YVR Legacy Stewardship Group. Michael, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Sydney. So tell me about this big event. How are you moving things online this year? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, it has been a big undertaking, for, to, to say the least, Um you know, as you were saying that, uh, you know, it's been quite a challenge to, you know, do everything remotely. Our event is is actually going to be a mix of live and pre-recorded segments. You know, our, our aim for the event is to replicate as much of the experience of Lunar New Year as much as possible. So that includes Kung Fu performances, uh, sorry, demonstrations, lion dance, music, food, bringing people together. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's all the facets of what, what Lunar New Year is about. And do you think people are like quick to adapt? They understand that okay, this is how we're going to do that this year. Yes, that's right. It's been it's been about a year of uh, being in the pandemic, and you know everyone's been on Zoom calls. I mean, I, I, we're talking to a lot of young people. They're I mean, of course, they're stuck in online classes every day. But you know, even people that hadn't been used to doing anything online, they they've they've had to. You know, it's adapting, and that's what we've had to do. Okay, so how can people join into this? Yeah, so uh, people can go to uh, register online for the event at chinatown.today slash LNY2021. And people can tune in on Saturday morning at 1130. And we have an, a one hour show. Oh, okay. That's going to be kind of cool. I guess that's in lieu of the parade that we would normally have. That's right. You know, everyone was very uh, disappointed that there weren't going to be anything uh, well, there weren't initially going to be anything going on, especially but the parade uh, being canceled the first time in 48 years uh, that takes place every year in Chinatown. Um, so the, the funny thing is this event came together very quickly. Um, most, most of us were actually resigned to not doing anything at all until about nine days ago when, you know, we, a few of us were, were just talking, so maybe we can do something small, you know, just for ourselves and, you know, some friends and family and, you know, uh, Louis LeCron, the, the from Chinatown today, you know, he asked, well, why don't we just do something bigger? And, and it really dawned on us, well, 
Why not? Yeah, there's yeah. A, you know we had a very short amount of time, but you know um, you know we all have day jobs. We all work full time uh, jobs, not doing anything that's related to event production or um, uh, you know putting on a scale something like this at this scale. And so to be able to pull something off, um, you know, it's coming together very nicely for tomorrow morning. Uh, you know, it's been nice. moving mountains. Nice. Okay. So then where can people get more information, Michael? Yeah. So they can go to uh, Chinatown.today. That's probably the best place to, uh, to get this information and they can register there as well. Okay. And would you think that like everybody should just participate? I feel like people need something a little fun, right? That's right. That's and maybe right. Lunar New Year can help them out with that. Yeah, we're really excited uh, to put this together. I mean, uh, a lot of our students uh, that are, you know, are part of the uh, martial arts classes and lion dance classes, uh, they had a lot of fun putting this together. We're, you know, we're calling it a lion dance experiment, a socially distant experiment. Nice. Because we're, we were inspired by, you know, being in the pandemic, you, know, you sit at home and while you're watching YouTube. There's all these uh, medley videos of people performing by themselves you know, across multiple things, um, you know, instruments and, and parts of a song. Um, also with the sea shanties on TikTok, you know, we were right. quite inspired by that. Um, so you'll see a sense of, of that and, you know, this new um, new media aesthetic and, and part of this experiment. So All right. I, I hope people come check it out. Yeah, I hope so too. I love it. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much, Simi. We need a plan in place, like a continuum of care when you walk into the emergency room for, for a heart condition, that there's a plan and process that you go through um, with specialist after specialist to see. It's immediate. That makes sense, right? That's Guy Falicello with the Overdose Emergency Response Centre and the BC Centre on Substance Abuse. He was speaking with our Jill Bennett about the record number of opioid overdose deaths that have been reported in 2020. How many? 1,716 overdose deaths last year. Compare that with 981 in 2019, a number that was already disturbingly high. So let's talk about that plan, that approach. Dr. Lindsay Richardson is a research scientist at the BC Centre on Substance Use and joins us now to talk about that kind of multifaceted approach that we need to address this crisis. Dr. Richardson, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. What has taken us so long, do you think, to even start thinking about something like this? Well, I think, you know, we're dealing with the worst year on record and rates higher than they've ever been. And a level of toxicity in the drug supply that we haven't seen before, the toxicity is higher than it's ever been. And there are things moving on multiple fronts, right? So we have advances that have been made in making sure people can access pharmaceutical-based alternatives, uh, and we're working on systems of care. But really what we're talking about is a, a very complex problem that touches on multiple sectors in in society and so we really need to be thinking creatively about this and and so there is a lot going on but there is uh, more that can be de- be done and and we're seeing some movement in some particularly interesting areas uh, um, around uh, you know the province trying to move forward on decriminalization uh, those kinds of things and so uh, it it takes a while uh, in part because uh, it's a really complex problem. What Guy mentioned there when he was talking to our Jill Bennett yesterday, it, it sounds so intriguing, right? The idea that if you present at the emergency room and you have an overdose and they revive you, 
Uh, at that point, should there be a system in place, Dr. Richardson, that says, okay, so we clearly know there's a problem here. Now we need to do X, Y, Z. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that we're real, well, one of the things that many people have been realizing for the last while is that our system is predominantly fractured. So the different parts of the system often don't speak to each other. Um, and it's, it's a challenging system to, to put in place. Um, and what, what Guy is, is speaking about is the need for wraparound care across multiple sectors that uh, we, we really uh, haven't yet developed uh, in a robust way. Right. But like if you, if you have a cancer diagnosis, right, you go to the doctor, you have a cancer diagnosis, immediately you get put into a system to deal with that cancer diagnosis. If you have a heart attack, same thing. What, what do you think takes us so long to develop a similar system if you have an opioid overdose? I think part of it is the stigma surrounding drug use and, and overdose, right? We, we don't, as a society, think about things in this, think about overdose in the same way. And that really is something that needs to stop, right? We often conflate it with it being a moral issue instead of it being a health issue. And so uh, I think stigma has a really large role to play in the reason why it's been challenging to move these things forward. What, um, where, where should we start with something like that? Well, I, I really feel that, you know, there's a lot moving forward, but we need to be thinking about the social and economic resources that people have and that we deploy in order to deal with this issue. And so, you know, we know that overdose can impact anyone, but it, that it disproportionately impacts people at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And one of the things that my team has done uh, recently is that we conducted a systematic review on socioeconomic well-being and overdose. And we found that there isn't as much research as we would like to see in this area, probably in part because there hasn't been as much work on it. Uh, but the, the research that does exist demonstrates a relationship that we would anticipate, that higher levels of disadvantage are associated with higher levels of overdose. And so thinking about the ways in which we can counteract uh, that disadvantage in ways that are protective, I think, is a really important uh, way of approaching this. I did notice from these statistics yesterday that once again we learned that the vast majority of people who die of these overdoses are men, and they they die in private residences, right, not in public places. Does that also hinder our ability to talk about this publicly and forget people to understand what's going on out there? Uh, well, I think, you know, we need to be thinking about the kinds of supports that we provide for people and the kinds of ways in which we configure our social and economic activities. And, you know, we can think about how um, people's resources affect their housing status and they, it affects their, their linkages to other people and to institutions that can be protective. We can think about how our resources affect how we come into contact with the criminal justice system, for example. I mean, we know... Uh, from previous reports that, uh, you know, up to two-thirds of people who are dying from overdose have prior contacts with BC Corrections. And so there really is a piece there in terms of um, our institutional architecture and mm -hmm. how we support people that that seems to not be cohesive in the way that it needs to be. Right, because you're talking about two completely different silos there, aren't you? You're talking about the healthcare yeah. system and the correction system. Yes. Yes, and we can also be thinking about the, our economic supports for people and, and the degree to which 
um, we're making sure that people are materially secure. Okay, so what what would you recommend as the next steps? Because these are uncomfortably high, really horribly high numbers for overdoses, and other provinces are seeing this happen too. What would you tell the government to do at this point? I mean, I I think what we need to be doing is thinking about this, and I like to think of the metaphor of like bricks and walls, in that there isn't a silver bullet that is going to fix all of this. Right. So we can think about the province's uh, request to decriminalize drugs in B.C., but decriminalization isn't going to affect the toxicity of the drug supply. The only thing that's going to affect the that's going to counteract the toxicity of the drug supply is making sure that people have access to alternatives. And that access has to happen both through the medical system, as it's currently happening, but also through a non-medical alternative, because people might not have access to their physician or uh, prescribers might not want to prescribe uh, alternatives right. to people. And so we need to be thinking about, okay, there's a legal component to this. There is a medical component to this. There's a social component to this. There's an economic component to this. And really be moving forward on all fronts to try and create systems that, that reduce people's exposure to risk. Do you worry sometimes that the discussion about the decriminalization of illicit drugs perhaps takes up too much oxygen in this discussion about being something that might help? Uh, I mean, I, I, I would advocate for, again, that bricks and walls approach where we're trying to move forward on multiple fronts. I think the decriminalization discussion is a, a really important first step. And it is a really, you know, no province in Canada has done that. Most countries in the world have not done that. And so I think that is going to take up a lot of oxygen because it is innovative and new, but it cannot be the only thing that we're looking at. All right, Dr. Richardson, thank you for your time. Thank you. Dr. Lindsay Richardson is a research scientist at the BC Centre on Substance Use and an associate professor of sociology at UBC talking about uh, the overdose numbers for 2020, which were horrible, released yesterday from the BC coroner's office, 1,716 overdose deaths in 2020 compared with 981 in 2019. That's almost double. And we know that the vast majority of people who died uh, are men between the ages of 20 to 59. And they also, the majority of them died in private residences. So at home, whatever the case may be, but essentially away from, you know, health officials, away from anybody who might have had a point to see and step in and try to help. Uh, Lots of discussion, right, about the safe injection site in the downtown east side. They have had no overdose deaths there. That is not where people are dying. People are dying in private residences. So how do we get more involved in that to prevent that from happening? And I thought the analogy of, of you know, the, somebody with a cancer diagnosis is a good one too, or a heart attack. You know what happens if you get a cancer diagnosis, right? You get put on a track to see an oncologist, to deal with the BC Cancer Agency, to move forward, to get that looked after and taken care of, but not anything similar for somebody who goes to the hospital with an opioid overdose, right? We're dealing with the worst year on record and rates higher than they've ever been 
and a level of toxicity in the drug supply that we haven't seen before. The toxicity is higher than it's ever been. That's Dr. Lindsay Richardson from the BC Centre on Substance Use talking about the record number of overdose deaths in 2020 and trying to come up with a more multifaceted approach to that. She was with us earlier on the show. So talking more about this now, about this grim milestone and the efforts in the city of Vancouver to fight that, we have Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Sammy. Thanks for having me. Now, we know that Vancouver has had its own efforts to try to combat this. What, what is Vancouver doing at this point? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've done a whole bunch of things in terms of, you know, what's it within our own power and then advocating uh, for help from the province and the Fed. So, for example, we have uh, teams on the ground in, in uh, single-room occupancy hotels that we're funding to go through and make sure people, if they're using a loan, they, uh, you know, we can get to them if they overdose. Uh, we funded extra, um, you know, special teams within the fire department to uh, both uh, to help with uh, naloxone revivals, but also following up. And this is a brand new program, uh, following up with folks after they've overdosed uh, for wellness checks by the fire department because they're so trusted and have paramedic training. Um, you know, uh, trying to get health facilities to folks, uh, funding outreach workers. Uh, and uh, doing everything we can within our city budget. Um, again, we give a 0.5% property tax uh, increase every year uh, goes to this. So we're we're spending millions and millions of dollars on this. But, but but we really need help on what I think is probably one of the greatest policy disasters in the history of the province. I mean, these deaths are preventable, and yet we've had since the provincial health emergency has been declared, 6,500 people die of overdoses and. And many, many times that number have been uh, have overdosed and been revived. Um, sometimes and sometimes, sadly, with uh, brain injury. So, given so this is a massive disaster. Yeah, given what you've said there, that the amount of money the city of Vancouver is spending, and yet, yet last year we had this record, awful high number, almost double what we had the year before. Is what we're doing working? No, I mean it's uh, we have to take bold policy moves, and that's why. Uh, you know, we've been calling for safe supply, which again is a, uh, you know, you substitute these poisoned illegal drugs with uh, prescribed uh, dr- pharmaceuticals that are prescribed by health professionals. Uh, that ha- is being slowly enabled, but not fast enough. Uh, not enough people are getting into this program. And the other thing I've been working on uh, with the federal government, with the federal health minister, who's been very helpful, is on decriminalization of all drugs within, within the city. Uh, and I think... Also, of course, we need the regular treatment and things that we would do in normal circumstances, but this is just, uh, it just uh, I don't know. Uh, I lost a family member uh, two weeks ago to this, and it's hard to find somebody that hasn't been touched by, uh, by this uh, very tragic and sadly preventable, um, again, I can't stress enough, disaster that's happening in our province. I'm sorry to hear that. It does It does touch so many people personally. You talked about the treatment issue there. Isn't that the big piece that's missing here, though? If you've got somebody who presents at the hospital with an overdose uh, and, you know, you, you want to give them options, are we giving people enough options? Well, I mean, what you'd want to do is have, the, you know, we have to face the fact that so, although some people are going to be able to uh, overcome and manage their addiction, uh, through means like treatment and, and abstinence programs, for example, that that's not going to work for the vast majority of folks who will uh, continue to uh, need uh, to uh, use illicit substances because of their addictions. Uh, and so, uh, safe, 
but these are all poisoned right now. Uh, you know, we've had studies from UBC showing, you know, over 90% of the drug supply has fentanyl in it, and it's fentanyl is just so deadly, uh, as we're seeing from casual overdoses, you know, folks who never really use drugs and then go to a party and take something and, and are dead. I mean, this is happening over and over again to the regular folks that are have regular habits that need uh, really daily um looking after and uh, until we replace the poison drug supply with uh, something that is a substitute, um, this is just going to continue. And I feel movement at the provincial and federal levels, but it's not fast enough. But if we want people to connect, look, they're going to have to connect with a health professional to get that safe supply. Is -hmm. that not also a challenge then? Because we know that the majority of people are dying alone at home. And in many cases, friends and family members don't even know they're using. Absolutely. And that's what we've been finding in the early bits of the safe supply where people have, you know, come to healthcare professionals to sign up. And what we're finding is that they're not even linked to the, the health system. So really, it's having this effect of in in uh, getting help with their addiction and becoming safer. They're actually getting into uh, you know they're getting a healthcare number and card, and they're getting uh, access to physicians and and uh, and nurses, and then they're able to address other health issues. So it is you know it is about holistic healthcare and uh, safe supply, uh, and and you know and more and more doctors and nurses are are kind of buying into this program and, and getting folks. Uh, you know, set up in it. It's not an easy topic, and it, and it really kind of goes against our nature to say, well, this is um, this is what we need to do. But here we are with one death a day in Vancouver still after four years, um, and it's getting worse, not better. So it's all hands on deck here, uh, and that's we can't let this continue. It's just uh, really inhuman. Mayor Stewart, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. Kenny Stewart, Vancouver Mayor, talking about the um, horrible overdose numbers that we had for 2020, announced yesterday 1,716, a big increase, 75% increase over the 2019 number, which was more like 900 overdoses. And again, what? how do you combat that? It's been a public health emergency for uh, more than five years now. What more can we do? Well, clearly quite a lot to bring that number down.